0: Are you guys ready up there? All right.
1: All right, quiet on the set. Hello, and welcome to the WIFT podcast. This is Vanessa Gilday, Vice Chair of Women in Film and Television Ireland. At the Cork Film Festival, I had the great honour of hosting a Q&A with one of Ireland's greatest filmmakers, Pat Murphy, after a screening of her brilliant and seminal film, Maeve. I was thinking about time when you made this film and some of the, the a lot of the themes that are raised in this film, and you know, we just repealed the Eighth Amendment, and at the time this film was made, there was they were lobbying to bring the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution, and also I was thinking about internment and the hunger strikes and mm. all around that 80-81 period. And I was wondering. If you talk a little bit about where you were coming from Ireland at that time where you were coming from and what was the drive to make this film
2: yes um it's so strange to actually look at it now because it was made at such a particular juncture you know when like it was basically in the middle of a war in the north of ireland and um so the things that it was about and the arguments in it feel particularly of its time so like i often wonder what sense people make of it looking at it now like but actually it's quite odd because it's having a bit of a moment because there's been a uk tour of the film but they're um yes by a group called club de Femmes. so so a lot of people are actually seeing it now mm. and it, it's it's like this weird artifact from the past on one level Um the way the film came to be made and the reason it looks the way it does is because I was at the Royal College of Art in mm-hmm. film school and, um, and I didn't get on too well there. I remember I moved to New York and then I started working with Lizzie Borden. She mm-hmm. was making a film called Born in Flames. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like at that point that I thought, oh yes, okay, maybe I am a filmmaker because it was like being around her energy. It was very inspiring. So um then at a certain point I realized I wasn't like a lower east side film filmmaker. Like I couldn't be Vivian Dick, so I came home. <laughs> and um and also like I had some I had a grant at the RCA still that was kind of on hold. So I came back to finish. And um in that last year there were two things that happened. One there was a documentary class um, given by a guy called Di Vaughan and he was talking about oppositional documentary and he actually used Ireland and images of Ireland as the pretext or the context for discussing documentary language and um, so we looked at things like... Um, Do you mean in particular Northern Ireland? Or yes, or, yeah. yeah so they were looking at things like a BBC view um, and then opposition you know which was all that kind of bland like odd pockets of terrorists you know like it, it was always it was a, a very particular way yeah. um to look at, at at the north of ireland and then he also showed oppositional documentaries like patriot the patriot game and um the derry film that a group called cinema action made and it was a very strange situation for me looking at it, because I was the only Irish person actually at the Royal College of Art at the time, in the film school. Yeah. And it felt to me like the the sense in the room was that the oppositional stuff was right, but that the BBC was all wrong. But I had a problem because I felt the oppositional stuff was also wrong. Yeah, And I began to think it was an issue to do with documentary, that there was a an unquestioning belief that the documentary truth was the truth mm. and i didn't feel that was true and then i began to think well maybe you know fiction is the only way really to unpack all the different levels of meaning of what's going on in the north of ireland so um so yes yeah, so so that's then i began to write it
0: mm.
2: and it draws on stuff i've been writing anyway but then when i began to write it i actually thought i would make a fake, a fairly straightforward narrative but Nothing about it would go, and then I realised very early that actually what the North suffers from is everybody trying to shoehorn it. At that time, I thought what the North suffered from is that everybody's trying to shoehorn it into a single narrative, and it, it just wouldn't go. Mm. So the film and the way I was writing it was simply reflecting that. And then um, the other thing that was happening at the Royal College at that time was that Laura Mulvey came to teach. She was actually teaching a course in neorealist realist cinema. But, so I didn't really sit in on her classes, but she had written this amazing essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative yeah. Cinema, that we were all completely dominated by and read. So, so the ideas in that really, like a lot of women filmmakers at the time, like Sally Potter, Lizzie Borden, you know, the, this essay would have been discussed, like how do you actually shoot a film so that you're not falling into the traps that she outlines in her essay. So that's why the film looks the way it does. And it, it really was to be about memory and politics, narrative, lots of storytelling, um, and different levels of the past. So I was working with these two friends from the Royal College of Art, um, Rob Smith and John Davis, and um they i I think had hoped that (laughs) that it would be a more straightforward film (laughs) but um i think we i think they sort of got behind the idea that that it was going to be this thing in episodes this film in episodes and that each episode was was intended to kind of illuminate the other so it was kind of and and then I was look you know, watching like loved Godard and Brecht. So there was this whole thing of not allowing ninety minutes of identification. mm mm-hmm. So that everything would get, you know, the audience would be denied this kind of very complete meaning that they would get from character. And then also the character of Maeve is quite problematic because she's not she's she seems very negative in relation to everything around her you know what I mean like she goes back into this situation and people are saying the way it is and she's just going no 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 like and even she seems to be like that when she's a child so so it was quite difficult to bring a film out where people didn't feel they could like this main character you know it was problematic I remember showing it to Republicans in Dublin and I remember Rita O'Hare saying I love Liam. I just love him. <laughs> like, that woman, Maeve, you know, she just reminds me of many feminists, and they're so annoying. It's all about me and my body and my space. It's just middle-class feminist. And I kind of looked at her and thought, you know, you're kind of right in a weird way. Was
1: that something that happened in reaction to the film that it was, for some, maybe too overtly rep- Republican at times or that not Republican enough? Or was that a
2: discussion that... Yes. Like, mainly what happened when the film came out, it was that um, it was never really looked at as a film. It was always a political document. And, and like, in a way, that's what it was made to be. Like, we kind of, you know, I was arrogant enough to think that this was, like, a big contribution to the debate on Ireland and it would change everything. And, of course, it, it's ludicrous, a ludicrous idea. But actually, um, what... Yes so, so so from the outset we were travelling with the film and talking and <laughs> like answering questions and like it was quite like i found it difficult like quite mm. wearing you know like there would initially when we showed well initially when we showed it when it was just about to be finished the second hunger strike was happening when yeah. we finished shooting it was gearing up to the first hunger strike which then the women were on as well.
0: The first one, yes. Yeah.
2: And then when um, the second one started to happen, uh, when we were editing the film, and some of the people who'd been involved in the film came to London where I was cutting it, and they felt it was hugely problematic. You know that that it would create a lot of problems for a lot of people, and that we couldn't put anybody's names on it. That I had to go and show it to the people who'd been involved and see what they thought. So it was decided that I would go back to Belfast and show it. And I showed it to three different groups. I remember there was a women's group, there were the community groups, because there were a lot of people, different kinds of people in Belfast too, like Ballymurphy People's Theatre, people mm-hmm. from Turf Lodge, people from the markets. There was a big spread of communities involved in the making of yeah. the film. So um I remember that was kind of tough because they had expected a different kind of film. Mm. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, when someone from this community gets to make a film, you don't make a film that's critical of your own community. So I remember it being hard, mm. you know. Um, but I remember Lelia Doolan being in the audience. like She came up from Dublin and she had lived in Belfast and she had started these film workshops. Mm. So everybody knew her. So she kind of swung the conversation away from being that hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think as well, you know, looking at it today, it obviously
1: is a different experience for the audience that would have looked at it in in the early 80s. Um, Um, But I think as well, you know, when when anyone talks about Maeve or your work, we talk about, you know, this avant-garde, very feminist mm-hmm. uh, work, but I also think what really struck me watching it tonight was what beautiful <coughs> filmmaking it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and that can get that lost a little bit in that conversation. Like I'd, I'd like I'd to take, talk to you yeah. a little bit about the, the craft. Yeah, As the so, casting
2: or working with actors, or the I think in those the days the non-linear it was, approach, all of that. Yeah, but I think in those days it really was about the politics, mm. like because it was very down to the. Because it had wire. to be,
1: I suppose, in a way. Well, yes, yeah. because
2: I remember the first time going home to show the film, and it was we had to cancel because Bobby Sands had just died, so yeah. so people were not in a space where they could go and look yeah. at a film, yeah. and so then. Like the film coming out, it was was the same time as The Hunger Strikes. So I remember it opened the Edinburgh Film Festival and we were supposed to be interviewed by the BBC. But that night, I think it was the last hunger striker, Mickey Devine, who died and we were in the TV studio to be interviewed for the film. And then they just came in and said, right, we're not doing the interview. And we said, why not? And they said, well, because one of your hunger strikers has died of his own volition. Yeah, exactly. his own volition and it's more than our life's work to put an interview with you out and I said but the film is not about the hunger strike and they said it doesn't you know everything to them was a threat yeah. and I remember Breach Brennan saying to this guy I don't think that he has very much volition at that point <laughs> so um, so yes in those days it was all about politics and yeah. I think now people well I think there were lots of stuff written about the film and yeah. lots of the aesthetics of it yeah. but um, I think nowadays people look at it in a different way. Mm. Except I think the arguments in it are not so urgent. Maybe now. No, but there's still then. a lot
1: of relevancy, I think.
2: Yeah. I feel... Mm.
1: Mm. You want to talk a little bit, maybe, and we might open some questions to the audience as well, Um, a little bit about mm. casting and working with actors. And mm. I'd love to ask you
2: a little bit about that. for this
0: Okay. Well,
2: we decided that it would be cast completely out of Belfast mm-hmm. and that we would work with community theatres as much as possible and that the main cast would be professional actors because there was a lot of pressure on them mm-hmm. every day. So that's what we did. Um, like Breach Brennan, everybody kind of knows because mm-hmm. I mean, she's so well-known. Mm-hmm. But the others, like, we, we cast it ourselves. We went to this house on the Ormo Road and we invited everybody around and we made videotapes. And um, and that's how it was cast. Mm. And it, I think it was quite difficult for Mary Jackson, who plays mm. Mae, for example, because she had she was a theatre actor mm. and a singer, and suddenly she's in the middle of this thing, which <coughs> is almost requiring her not to act. So, basic. I mean, I look at it now, and you know, some people think, "Oh, well, it's not acting," but I think it's quite a big thing that she's done because she has to just convey her character, if you're looking at it as a character, is not a sympathetic person at mm. many levels and on a, on, on a conventional level. Mm. And um, a lot of what she's doing is simply conveying these arguments. You know, like my idea was that when those debates happen in the film, that actually their characters stop. They're simply having these debates. But in effect, that's not what happens. I mean, you still know of them. You still think of them as being in character. So yes, so the um, the community theatres were, it's like Father Des Wilson uh, introduced us to the Ballymurphy People's Theatre, so a lot of people, a lot of the actors in it come from that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, and then there was Turf Lodge that also had a, Martin Lynch, they had a, a theatre company as well, so yeah. And
1: is that a side of filmmaking that you love, working with actors?
2: Um, uh, yes, um, I think it took me... I think the thing of working with actors, of really working with actors, didn't really happen for me in a way that I... Like, I think Nora is the proudest I've been working with actors because because I felt it was a real collaboration and I kind of knew how to work with what those actors offered. Whereas I think earlier... With Maeve and with Anne Devlin, I had a very clear view of the way it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I was asking the actors to do what I wanted them to do. Whereas I think with something like Nora, it's more of an organic adventure. Like you're choosing actors because of where you think they might take this role rather than... They are absolutely going to illustrate what I want them to do. Yeah, I like. can imagine
1: with someone like Susan Lynch yes. that she's going to have a, a whole a party over that role
2: outside yes. of the directors. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's it's more um it's more a sense of developing something with someone. Yeah. You know, like I can remember in Nora uh oh, we were shooting some scene that was we'd run out of time, and I remember the first AD saying we don't, we don't have time to shoot that scene, so it's gone. And I'm saying, well, if it's gone, then we don't have a film because this is, this is a crucial scene. So I said, let me think about it. So I went back to him and said, okay, I can do this in one shot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I said, okay, you can try. And so everybody's going, of course you can't do it in one shot. So um, so it was difficult because we had rehearsed it a different way. So um, like I spoke to you and Susan, Susan. And I said, this is the way it's going to work. So it's it's a part where he is removing the children to the country. And he's sort of, tri- this is James Joyce. So he's kind of triggering her to have this love affair with a friend. And she is alert to what he's up to. And she's in a fury with him. But she doesn't feel she can do anything except go along with it. So it's all one tracking back shot. And then looking into this room. Where you see him speak and so i was all focused on this tracking back and then he had to walk out of camera into another room and then as she's moving back and the camera's coming back with her then they meet up again near the door and um so i remember you and saying to me <laughs> what will i do how will i know when to go and i was so fraught trying to make this this whole shot work i just said listen you just stand there and then you go. And, and he said, well, that's the weirdest direction I've ever had in my life. <laughs> so, so the thing was, it was perfect. And then afterwards he said, the weird thing was, I knew what you meant. And the thing about it is, is that that's like, I guess the point of this Odd little stories that after eight weeks of working with some people very, very intensively, there's a kind of a shorthand yeah. that goes on. And I think I didn't really it's have the relationship that. Relationship is good. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but I think I really didn't have that with those early films. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And in terms of script, you were saying it was at that stage that you started to realise the film that you wanted to make wouldn't fit this conventional narrative mm-hmm. structure. And did that, did the film, say, the, the film that we see? Is that what would have appeared there at script? Or did that yes. kind of, oh, did, or the yeah. experimentation did, wasn't yeah. in the, again, in the edit? or? You had, you had uh, I think we unsettled? moved some
2: things around in the edit. Mm. But actually, I was quite surprised because um, Lance Pettit is going to bring out uh, a book, a, a sort of a, a publication with the DVD. And he went into the archive and dug out a pile of stuff. I just gave them mm. boxes of things. And one of the things he dug up was this storyboard. Like, I had storyboarded that whole film. Mm. So he wants to use, he wanted to use some of these images. And I was going, okay. So I was just looking through it. And I hadn't seen it in a million years. And I was quite astonished how it's, it's the storyboard is actually on the screen. Huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've loads more questions I'd like okay. to ask you,
1: but I'll hold back because this is an audio and Would anybody like? to start with question. a
0: question, ask a
2: question. Let we talk a little bit about
1: your co-directors in uh, the yes. role uh, to yes. mm-hmm. the British? Yes. congratulations, such a wonderful friend.
2: Yeah. Uh, in... Um, The two people who I made the film with are Rob Smith and John Davis. And um, we saw it because it was the late 70s. We saw it, and everybody was into collaboration and workshops. We really saw it very much as we making the film together. And um, so I wrote it. John edited it. But we were all in the room while he was editing it. Rob shot it. And John and I ended up co-directing it. And um, I think the whole... Well, everybody... It was total torture. Like, I noticed neither of us have tried to co-direct since. (laughs) You know, and trying to to make that film and hold on to the meaning in a very chaotic situation where all the circumstances around it are pulling it away in different ways is, like, very hard. And um, so there were huge battles that went on. Just huge battles. And, like, I felt it was a really hard job to hold on to the film I had envisioned envisioned to get it onto the screen. Because I think what happened for them was they went to Belfast for the first time and were so shocked Mm. by what they saw that they said, why are we doing this theoretical film? We have to do this other thing. And I'm going, no, no, no. This is what we're doing. So like every day we had battles about content. Um, But I think the amazing thing about it was that we actually all stuck it together to the very end you know, like a lot of productions fall apart at that point. So it was sort of interesting. In August, um, there was a screening in London, like a culmination of this kind of British tour. And the three of us got together and watched it and we hadn't seen it. We haven't been together, like we used to go to festivals together with it, but we haven't really seen it together since 1982. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it was interesting
0: yeah um question and um, it's brilliant that you're in ucc for the year yes that's i think part. it's brilliant too mm-hmm. and um that's my first time saying extraordinary work like there's be year for two days talking about yeah and um, briefly just wanted to say um i find it very interesting how you talk about it and the character of me because i feel watching it i find it very sympathetic and oh, mm, relatable <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting the role that Liam opposite. I think that 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 you've been very fair actually in, in how you've constructed those two. And um,
2: I think a lot of women filmmakers do that though, because women filmmakers are often accused of not being able to write men. So most women filmmakers, <laughs> myself included, sit down and really work hard at <coughs> writing men. Like we don't make assumptions that we know how to do it. So so and also I needed him to have a viable position you know it needed to be a real debate
0: the mother's character is very interesting as well Mm. Um, because obviously she has a lot less screen time but very powerful role Mm. maybe yeah I I have so many questions but maybe I'll ask that one (laughs) could you speak to her role and the onset in her role is very powerful like her presence on screen Mm -hmm. and, and that scene at the end very moving and it go on the Giants of right. yeah and yeah the, the voice occupying space is this and um, there's a line which refers to her crying sleep mm. and the way the daughters talk about their mothers they don't talk about their mum and do, do does that interest you to, to speak to that or, or
2: um yes i don't quite know how to speak about it though um like i was very like there's always a debate in cinema about women having a voice and not having a voice like when i made a film or not having a voice on screen i remember making a film called Anne Devlin and people some people said well she doesn't talk for half of the film you know and i was trying to explain that in a culture in a political culture where her power is in her silence, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a conscious decision, it's not like she has been silenced, she's making a political decision not to speak. Mm -hmm. And I remember Jane Campion having the same critique around the piano, because the main character, the protagonist Ada, is mute, an elective mute. But anyway, in Maeve, um, my idea was that this woman, every time she tried to speak, her husband would kind of brown her down so she begins to tell a story he takes over mm-hmm. um, so he's the one who has the voice and part of the story is about is how he's always telling stories mm-hmm. and towards the end of him telling stories they're kind of starting to disintegrate and the daughter's not really listening anymore um, the mother and daughters yes I'd seen that as at the heart of it really But I don't know how to talk about it more than is on the screen. Yes.
0: It It seems extraordinary looking back that the film got made at all. I think think so too. I think it's
2: amazing no one died. Yeah.
0: yeah. Can you talk us through, though, how it did come to be supported? I know it was the BFI. Yes. Um,
2: Well, I, I, I applied to the BFI. I finished... At the Royal College of Art. I went back to New York, I finished the script, I sent it to the BFI (coughs) and in those days it was Peter Sainsbury and this was before there was a film board. Mm. Um, So the BFI in those days were actually good at supporting Irish cinema. Mm -hmm. They supported Thaddeus and Mm -hmm. Joe. Joe had made Mm Traveller just before I made this and I think they also gave finishing money to Cahill for our boys I'm not sure about that. I think some small amount in. So I remember um, when the film board started, Peter Sainsbury saying to me, well, I think we'll sign off now. You know, now you have your own film board. And I was going, no, 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 don't. We still need you. We don't know what's going to happen. But um, so, yes, so I submitted it to them. And um, they gave £75,000. And... um, Because basically each year they gave something like 300,000 to some high-flying filmmaker like Peter Greenaway. And then they would give a medium level to people who were emerging or starting out, like me. So that was a 75. And then they'd give much smaller amounts to (laughs) animators or people who weren't making productions as much, more like personal films. Mm -hmm. So so that's what we made it for, 75,000. And it was... um, they had an interesting structure in those days around how they made, how they supported films. Um, they took on an agreement that they had with ACTT, with the union, and basic, and it was a shorts and documentaries agreement, but the, but the union reckoned, since none of the films that the BFI made were commercial, that it would be okay for the BFI to do it this way. So basically, you got paid £30 a day. Everybody got paid £30 a day. So I would get paid the same as an extra, but I worked more days, so I would make more money ultimately. And I remember thinking that wasn't a bad way to proceed if you were thinking about low-budget filmmaking and a sense of sustainability, you know, in those days. So, first of all, they agreed to you know they agreed to make the film, and then they were kind of worried. They felt. That, um, that basically I should not work with John and Rob, that they should they would supply this crew. So we nearly died. You know, we had this kind of debate. And, um, like, to go over with a crew that, it would be like going in with a BBC crew who wouldn't have a clue about what the reality was there. Whereas, like, Rob and John were like working class British people who had a sense of, Very grounded, you know. Um, So it had to be them. So, like I went back and said, it has to be them. And then they threw up this new glitch was, well, the previous film you made was completely non-narrative. Like, we don't know that you can actually do this. So I remember sitting in an office that John and Rob had in Brixton. Every night and day, I didn't sleep for a week doing this storyboard to show the BFI, look, I know what a narrative, how to shoot a narrative film. And then they said okay, so that's that's when we started doing it. And then um, mid when we were about to shoot, we realised we were short of ten thousand. Really, the budget was really eighty five. So we went to Dublin and RTE gave us ten. So that was that was how that worked.
0: Was the was the Beethoven did end Devlin, wasn't
2: it? That's right. Yeah. All right. Because I saw that I, I've never seen the Tonight. <laughs> I just to have absolutely fascinating film
0: at the time. But I was just going to ask you: What filmmakers influenced yourself? You know, did any two women like Margaret Bondar? You know, the famous women, women filmmakers. What, what women or men who influenced you in kind of style of filmmaking and you know how, you know? Mostly? It wasn't
2: actually. It wasn't really women filmmakers. It was more the fact that women made films, their energy in making the films was that influenced me, like Lizzie, for example, um, and people like Maya Deren yeah, from the 1940s, awesome. and Germaine Dulac, Alice Guy Blaschet in the, the early part. The first woman to make a feature film was a French woman. The first person to make a feature film was Alice Guy Blaschet. and she started Gaumont in France. So, so it was like realising that there were these women. You know, like I think when... In the early '80s, when you started making films, there was a bit of a tradition of women making films in the avant-garde, you know, like mm. Carolee Schneeman or Maya Deren. But there weren't that many women. I didn't really know that of that many that were making features. So, in terms of learning, looking at films that I could get things from, um, I looked at Polanski. Um, there's uh, lots of shots in this film that are quotes from him, like I remember we got, the first thing we did when the BFI gave us money was get Chinatown out and look at it backwards and <laughs> forwards on a steam back to look what was he, where was he putting the camera and like things like that. Um, and actually Goddard as well. Yes, Goddard, all, nearly all Goddard films, mm-hmm. like just because of the way he works with sound and image, the way he works with cutting, the way he juxtaposes sequences and the politics. yeah.
0: I really love the film. That's the first time I've seen. It. It's a great experience. Oh, thanks very much. It brought me on a huge journey back into the 19th. <laughs> the clothes, the weather,
2: everything. It was a real
0: journey. But I just wondered when I seen a really slick dialogue that, that was shot in the graveyard. It was really slick. Why did you pick a graveyard?
2: Because it's where Henry Joy McCracken is buried. Um, these scenes where they have these dialogues have something to do with Republican history. Like the top of Cave Hill is where the United Irishman was invented. Think, like, like Wolf Tone, and Henry Joy McCracken and where they McGart's Fort. Like we couldn't get up quite that high. But but that's those locations. I mean they're they're not flagged up in the film, but they were important to me mm-hmm. to film there. So um the graveyard is Clifton Graveyard. It's all Clifton Street in Belfast and I mean, in those days, it was quite derelict, but it's where Henry Joy McCracken is buried.
1: And at that point, were
2: you were you
1: always interested in the history that came before and uh, and Devlin? Like, uh, you know, just while you're talking about uh, McCracken and going back, were were you already was that film already ruminating when you would have been in Belfast uh, Yes,
2: <laughs> but the reason and Devlin happened was because I knew I had a friend called Teddy Hickey who was a distant descendant of Anne Devlin, and He was the curator of art. He died in 2005, but he was a a great instigator of things. So he said to me, I have this book and it's your next film. And I was in the middle of like trying to make me, and I said, oh, Jesus, you know, I don't need any of this. So he gave me this book, and it was The Prison Journals of Anne Devon. And so I read it, because it was very easy to read. And the thing that struck me about it was how simple and visual it was and how it was almost the complete antithesis of Maeve. I mean, Maeve is someone who is always going, no, no, you know, or like piercing through things, like trying to analyse things. Whereas Anne Devlin was someone who said, yes, I'm in, and was in to the very end. Mm -hmm. So... um, So yeah, so after Maeve came out, like I came back to Ireland in 82, basically because Lilia said to me, you'll have to work in the National Library to research that film and you can't be doing that from London, so come back. And well, so if Lena told you to do something, yes, do absolutely. It. Yeah, so I just did what she told me, <laughs> and, and she said, And you can run our film department in Rathmines. And I go, Fine, and I arrive in the film department, it's like three super eight cameras. <laughs> 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 but, but the students were doing great work on these cameras, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, we should finish Yeah, anything. I think we, we have to finish overtime. up, but
1: I was going to
2: say that you know,
1: you made this film, maybe it is. You are such a strong filmmaking w- female voice. You made this film, your first feature film, about mm-hmm. a very strong, powerful woman in very difficult situation and removing herself from that. And I, I joined. I was. I, I saw made much later, but I was really, really. I know you said you thought you'd change the world or change the situation, did but you did change. You know. For women filmmakers, you change things for us in a way that you're probably not even fully aware of. But, so here we are in 2018. Mm-hmm. I got involved in women in film and television because I read the statistics. These statistics started to come out in the last, you know, four or five years, and they're just... I mean, they're, they're unbelievable. They're appalling, they you are. know? They yes. are, um, And I just thought, you know, <laughs> maybe you'll spin this round to somewhere really positive because <laughs> things are getting a little bit better. But... Where, how do you like? You know, it's that's I maybe mean, thirty years ago. Hmm. You know, you made um, Maeve. H- how do you feel about gender equality and w- w- women's voices, and also women's
2: storytellers and their stories? What, how do you feel about where we are right now? Um, well, I think it's a good moment. I think it's a good moment. I think right now the focus is there. I think what we were trying to do in the early eighties was. Quite a lot, because it wasn't just to get about trying they trying to develop more women filmmakers, but it was also a situation where we felt the content of films that existed couldn't contain what women's stories were, so that's why a lot of the content of like Sally Potter's films or mine, for example are radical in form and um, <coughs> And then it was also the question of like wanting more, more and more people to work, more and more women to work as crews. Whereas I think now the focus is more, like maybe it's a bit more realistic that um, it's not so much that the yes, there's more of an emphasis on women protagonists and women told stories, but there isn't, I think, such an attempt to change the form itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Like, when we were working in the early 80s, we just assumed that things were going to get better. Like, it's quite staggering when you look at what happened in the 80s, when people were quite fearful, even of calling themselves feminists. People would say, oh, well, I'm a post-feminist. Do you remember that phrase? You know, like, that's all been done. You know, and it was like, it's don't annoy the boys. Yes, yeah, <laughs> don't annoy the boys in case they won't give us any work. So it was it was a bit like that. Um, it's still a bit like that. yeah. But it is, like, I, I think the situation is, well, because of the Me Too movement, mm. and because of um, Waking the Feminists and the impact of that on the film board and the work that academics are doing and pointing up, like Susan. Susan, who, yeah. Yeah. Who, and pointing up the situation. I think there is a sort of a shift. But but I think the resistance is huge. It is. You know, I just think the resistance is huge because basically, this sounds like the other thing that happens when you're a woman filmmaker is you make you cut deals after a while. You know, like I think when you made made, I was like on the barricades and just thinking, "Everybody, out of my way! I'm doing this." But by the end of the second film, or when you're always trying to raise money for Nora, like really, what you're looking at is is, is I can try and win this war or else I just can just try and make this film. Mm. And at a certain point, you're just trying to make the film. So the wider thing is gone. And I think that's what happened with a lot of women, mm. a lot of my contemporaries, is mm. that it just trying to survive personally because to take on the whole world was like too much, mm. you know. And so I think maybe things are getting better and I think it's better that it's more focused. Like it's about work, and more women directors mm-hmm. rather than trying to change the form and change the world and well.
1: cinematographers and yes. you know we're yeah. fighting that uh, yes. good fight um, I, this is great I hope we can continue the
2: conversation as we go out. I think okay. we could have yeah. talked for much longer oh, I, would so lo- much. I would love to have mm-hmm. talked for longer I wanted to say this is actually a special screening, you know, because the first time Maeve was shown in Ireland was in 1981 in the Cork Film Festival. Wow. When most of you were not born. <laughs> I <was. laughs> and, um And it won Best Irish Film then. So I'm kind of right, amazed so to be invited amazing. back. It's yeah. very nice. It's great, Thank fantastic. you. It's wonderful. You.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Until the next time, thank you for listening. For more content and information, please visit our website at wft.ie.